Welcome to episode 48 of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'll be joined for today's episode by co-host Kara Goucher. We are excited on this Mother's Day to welcome Coach Ben Rosario to the show. Ben is the coach of the amazing team at Northern Arizona Elite, sponsored by Hoka One One. Ben has coached four of our guests from this year alone, including Scott Fobble, Kellen Taylor, Stephanie Bruce, and of course, Marathon Trials champion Olafine Tuliamuk. We are excited to talk to Ben because he is a coach that is not only doing it at the highest levels in our sport, but he's been there as an athlete as well. Ben is not afraid to tell it exactly like it is, and we cover all things with him from his team's performance at the Olympic trials all the way to his perspective on how to attack doping in our sport. With that as your intro, let's welcome Ben Rosario to the show. Welcome to the latest episode of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. Today with me is co-host Kara Goucher. How are you doing today, Kara? I'm doing great, Chris. I'm excited about our guest today because he is the coach of many of our most favorite episodes we've had on the Clean Sport Collective. Absolutely, including Alfie Tulimuk, Olympic Trials champion who we had on most recently. Ben Rosario is with us. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm great. Thank you guys for having me. We are excited to have you as coach to the great team NAZ Elite, but we want to start with a little bit on you your background in sport, whether that be running or wherever, wherever you started, give us a little context for you. How did you get into sport? I'll give you the quick version because it's similar to so many other runners, you know, classic kind of started dabbling with running in middle school, ran in high school. I, I did run for a very good program in St. Louis, which was nice. Uh, great coach ran in college at Truman state university, which is a division two school in Northeastern Missouri. Then I ran for the Hanson's Brooks Distance Project for two years, from 2003 to 2005, and then moved back to St. Louis, Missouri, which is my hometown, where I continued to run, but also started coaching, had running stores, uh, did a little bit of everything for about six years before moving to Flagstaff, Arizona in 2012. And then in 2014, we launched Northern Arizona Elite. And that has been my life ever since. Wow, that was a quick Cliff Notes version <laughs> of your career. Very impressive. Let's go so back I've done to the a beginning. Lot of podcasts. You know, I got I got that down. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning, though. When you first started running, what was your experience with it? And and you were a great runner in your own right. Made your own Olympic trials for the marathon back in the day. We won't give a date for that, but but how did you know? How did you learn in the sport that you had that you were good at it? Well, I loved all sports growing up. I was a baseball nut when I was really young and then sort of transitioned into really loving basketball, kind of coincided with Michael Jordan's Bulls teams in the early 90s and played a lot of basketball. But I played soccer as well. And look, I would have loved to have gone on to play any of those sports. I loved all of them. But you gravitate toward what you're best at. And I could beat kids when we did a lap around the fields, you know? And so I liked winning. I was very, very competitive and I was just drawn to something that I was uh, good at. You mentioned your coach there and having a good program growing up in the St. Louis area. What did he impart in you that helped you connect to the sport and ultimately lead to being a coach yourself? 
I think there were a lot of things that maybe I didn't even realize at the time. One of which, or perhaps the biggest thing, was just his passion for what he was doing, his commitment to his craft. I think that his life in many ways was unhealthy <laughs> during those years because he was giving so much time to the team, probably at times to the detriment of his family, which in some ways isn't necessarily admirable, but it it's what it takes, you know, to be great. And uh, he created a great program and he really cared about us. I think I learned that. I think I learned that if you want to be a great coach, you have to care about your athletes on a level that's much deeper than just their results. And he was always willing to learn. You know, he really didn't have an ego. He was very confident and he was very um, easy to believe in. He certainly wasn't um, shy about about uh, taking control of the room. He had that sort of commanding presence, but it didn't, it, it wasn't like he was an egomaniac either. You know, he was the guy who would take a clipboard and go up to another coach and, and ask him some questions and take notes. Um, and he was always learning and he was always tinkering and, 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 and working with us. And he really respected us as, as we weren't adults, obviously, but we were, you know, pretty bright young kids. And he was willing to talk to us about things. And, we sort of had that we culture is what I call it now. I, I I don't know that we called it that back then, but that's what I call it now on our team. And, um, you know, it was just very much we're in this thing together, and that's what he created. He cared as much about the 99th guy on the team as, as much as he did about the first guy on the team. So I learned um, all of those things and more from him. And at what point in your running career did you think, you know what, maybe I want to be a coach when I when I hang up the marathon flats? Probably more early than late, uh, interestingly. I think that I respected and admired Jim Linares, my coach, uh, that was his name. Uh, I, I admired Jim so much that I think I had thoughts of being a teacher and a coach, just like him. But to be very honest, I wasn't much for the classroom. So as I got into college and just skated by, I think it was clear that going back into the classroom wasn't going to be my thing. And so at that point, I was more just focused on my own running. And then when I got into business and started the running stores, I was all in on that. Uh, but what happened was through the running stores, I was coaching people. So I was coaching little kids. I was coaching beginners. I was coaching sub-elite athletes. And I was really liking it. I still don't think I necessarily thought, oh, I'll quit the stores and start coaching full time. Uh, that e even when I left the stores, that wasn't what I thought. I came to Flagstaff just because I needed to get away. But then I, because uh, I was burnt out. But then I started coaching people in 2013 here, and I really loved it. I really loved it. And so that's when that thought of actually coaching as a profession re-entered my mind. Ben, you work with people who are the elite of the elite. I mean, you coach the Olympic trials marathon winner. You coach, I mean, you had three women in the top seven, I believe, at the Olympic marathon trials. I always thought, I always think that would be an intimidating job. Like where, how do you get your confidence and your belief in yourself that like you're going to steer them the right way and not mess it up? <laughs> well, you don't, I mean... I am a very confident person by nature and, and very competitive, and I have always been a leader type. 
among my friends group or among my teammates in high school and college. So that kind of thing comes very naturally to me. However, uh, you're not incorrect. I do have sort of a complex that it's all going to fall apart and uh, it's going to be, um, you know, we're going to lose our sponsorship and, you know, people are going to leave the team and these weird thoughts enter my mind and I'm just wired that way, but it keeps me very driven. So, you know, that, that's the sort of, that's how I was at the stores too. I always felt like we had to say yes to everything and do everything possible because if we didn't, it would all fall apart, which of course isn't true, but that's just sort of how I'm wired. So my confidence is sort of innate. And then the way I deal with those negative thoughts is just, um, just work, you know? So if, if I start feeling like that or feeling anxious, I just, I just do something. I just do work and then I feel better, you know, whether it's working on a schedule and trying to create an outline for uh, the future or whether it's, you know, the various social media things we do and blog posts or whatever it might be. If I'm accomplishing something, then I feel good. And so that's kind of where I get my confidence. Yeah, I just think when you're coaching people and they're trying to achieve these big dreams, I don't I don't think people understand that that can be really it's a lot of pressure and I really respect people that can handle that and you obviously have a calming presence around your athletes. Your athletes believe in you so much and have performed so well. Um yeah, I just think it's really impressive. But tell us how Hoka became the sponsor of your group. When we launched in 2014, it was really my wife and I putting everything into the team. So we were fortunate to have some capital to work with because of the buyout uh, from the stores. So again, I had sold my half of the business and it was a successful business. So we had some money to to play with and we treated it. We treated the team much like we treated the stores, like a business. And so we, we had a, a very clear business plan and that plan included pitching this group to various companies, uh, shoe companies and, and otherwise. But what happened was we had enough success in 14. Uh, we won a couple of national titles, um, one in cross country, one on the roads. We ran some really fast times. We did some really cool and innovative things on, on social media and created a brand for ourselves, which is what we wanted. And throughout that period, we were pitching the group to shoe companies and, and other companies. And we had created quite a nice deck uh, to show them. And we were working with Josh Cox and he was the one pitching us to these companies. And he knows what he's doing. He's very good at what he does. And by the time early 15 rolled around, we had three different companies that were interested, which was good because that created leverage. And then Kellen Taylor ran 228.40 in her debut at Houston, which was at that time tied for the sixth fastest um, debut. So uh, among Americans, I should say. So we, um, sorry, my screen went blank there for a second. We um, we were pitching pitching the group to all these different uh, companies, and I'm not saying they were fighting over us, but again, the leverage helped. And Hoka was the one that was that we just fit best with because we were pitching ourselves to them as, hey, we know you've got all these ultra runners. Uh, we know you've signed Leo Manzano, but the masses are on the roads. The masses are running the marathon and the half marathon. 
And that's what we do. And that's what we're best at. And we can reach that audience for you. And, you know, they, they agreed. And so we started hammer on, hammering out a contract and uh, we agreed on it in February of 2015. And, and we've been with them ever since. Can you talk a little bit about the economics there? I think the average fan may not understand how hard it is to to get a good deal and to fund a team like you've built with NAZ Elite. Not that you have to give us the specifics, but what what's unique about that Hoka deal that's really allowed you guys to do what you do and do it well? The first deal we signed with them in 15 was really cool because we definitely thought outside the box. We had a lot of control over our roster, which is unique. Uh, I wanted that control for sure. I didn't want a situation where we were being given athletes that we didn't feel would necessarily be a fit. So that was unique. Uh, Our bonus structure was really good. We, We didn't just copy and paste another bonus structure from contracts that are from the nineties, which I have to tell you happens. And yeah. as Kara probably <laughs> knows, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we just, we sat down with them as business people, you know, and, and we said, Hey, w- what, what's a win for you guys? What are you looking for? You know, what, what kind of, you know, they wanted awareness, brand awareness was their number one goal uh, in signing us. And, and, and in fact, it still is their number one goal. And so when we're, when we're talking about bonuses with them, we're not just saying, oh, well, if so-and-so runs to under 228, then they should get this. Yes, of course, we have those time bonuses. But we're also saying, hey, let's think about what kind of road races are really reaching the masses, regardless of the level of competition. You know, And we're, we're thinking about, okay, uh, if, if we, in fact, can win this race or that race, we know that we can make a big deal about that. And that's what we're bringing to the table that maybe others aren't, although people are doing a better and better job, but we're saying, look, if we win X race, you know that we're going to create a video about it. We're going to have a ton of social media about it. We're going to get that person on podcasts. We're going to get articles written about that race. We're going to, we're going to make that valuable for you. And so that's what you're paying for. Uh, You're not just paying for the performance, which I think many times athletes don't understand. They think, um, oh, well, I deserve this because I ran well. No, you deserve it because it, 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 um, it brought eyeballs to the brand that you're representing. And so from, from the very beginning with, with Hoka and with our athletes, we've, we've really always uh, treated it that way and, and um, understood that it was a business and our job is to sell shoes. And the fun part is the running and the training for sure. But let's not forget that, um, you know, there's a reason they're paying us and it's not just to run fast. Yeah, you guys have thought outside the box for so long. I feel like you're the first group to really share openly on social media. I'm just thinking about last week where I watched a whole slew of your athletes run the same 5K. Um, it was And it was super exciting. Like, do you guys brainstorm those ideas together as a group? Do you think together, like, how can we be different from other groups and how can we present ourselves in a way that's valuable? Yes, we do. I mean, we, we, we brainstorm with the athletes. Jen and I brainstorm all the time. We have an awesome board of directors that shoots ideas at us. Um, we're working on some things this summer that basically came straight from the board. Um, we're just, I just, I like that part of it. You know, I, I, I am as interested in the business side of things as I am in the coaching side of things. And right now we have a roster 
with a lot of athletes that are the same way. You know, Steph Bruce is the same way. She she is unbelievably passionate and serious about her craft uh, as it meaning running, but she's equally as serious about her craft as as a brand ambassador and more than that a a motivator of people. Um, she she understands the responsibility that she's created for herself in terms of being a role model. And she takes it very seriously, just as seriously as she takes her running. And she's just one example of many on our team. And so that's, you know, that's just at the core of who we are and that's never going to change. And um, I think in our sport, it's, it's as important, probably more so than in any other sport, because especially in distance running, we only race a few times a year. We don't play 82 basketball games and get interviewed after every single game. If, if we want attention, we have to create it for ourselves. And that's, you know, the example you used last week is, is a good one because, you know, that was no, that was no fast time or anything. It was actually kind of a crappy day and uh, it was kind of rough in terms of the actual running, but it wasn't about that. You know, it was about our fans and it was about giving them something to watch during this brutal time when there's, um, there's nothing for, for fans right now in terms of competition. So we just wanted to give them something to do and talk about. And uh, that's, that's the sort of thing we're, we're working on for this summer as well. That's great. You've built such a strong team dynamic and you've talked about that business perspective, but you also talked earlier about this we concept. How did you build that within the team? Because it doesn't happen overnight and it also means picking the right people, getting the right people in the group to to bring that to bear. So how did it come to be that you built this great team dynamic? I think the team dynamic has created itself over time in, in a lot of ways because I do see I do see coaches and, and different programs that try to create their culture on a piece of paper. Basically, what you're doing when you do that is you're saying this is what we want our culture to be. What, what we did, I think, was we certainly did some of that early. But I think what you see now is really an organic process. Our culture is what it is now because of the people that are on the team. The, the Scott Falbles and the Steph Bruce's and, the, and, and Ben Bruce and Alephine and Kellen and Scott Smith, all, all the people who've been with us for a long time, they're really who created this. Uh, they, they were the ones who have been great teammates and have kind of taken us down this path that I, I don't know that I necessarily could have predicted. I'll, I'll tell you, um, you know, one of the things we did early on in the group like like so many teams and like so many uh, college programs, everything else is we used to do these goal setting sessions and we'd set these uh, time goals on a whiteboard and, oh, yeah, we want to run this, we want to run that. And, you know, over time we kind of realized that, you know, what we have is, at least in terms of the people that really work well here, we have competitors. We have people that like to line up at the Boston Marathon and give it a go uh, or New York or, or the Olympic trials. And, and sure, we want to run fast times, of course, but uh, – these people are very intrinsically motivated. We, we don't, we, we really have found that it's not the, it's not the people that want this arbitrary time goal to validate something in their own mind that they've set for themselves. It's more like how, how good can we be? Uh, how, how, how hard can we run? How deep can we go and, and, and let the time be a, a byproduct of that. And, and, and let's be, let's be as excited for our teammates as we are for ourselves and that that's really the type of group that that we ended up having uh, that it just it just weeded itself out that way and so a couple of years ago now we we created a big culture 
deck. It's about 10 pages. I think the meeting took six hours to create this thing. But it was all of us. It was all the athletes saying, yeah, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. And, you know, hey, you, you carry the load when you're feeling good and because you know somebody else is going to carry it for you when you're not. And, um, you know, we're we're excited when we when we do well. We're never bitter uh, against our teammates. You know, there, there's no um, there's no animosity between us, all, all these things. And, uh, you know, I give all the credit for that to, to those folks because they um, they created that over time. Well, your fingerprints are there too, though. I know I saw an interview of you, I don't know if it was before or after the Olympic trials, where you talked about the idea that you guys weren't training to make a team. You were training to win that race, and it happened in Alphine's result. But let's let's talk about the trials because it was such a big day for all of your athletes. As you reflect back on that experience now, what, what comes to mind? <laughs> It was just an awesome day. You know, it was a super fun day. It was a great experience. I, I had given I had given everybody in December a little uh, training log, old school, that you have to write on with a with a pen. <laughs> and uh, it was actually Lauren Fleshman's uh, Believe Journal, the the six month version. And I said, Look, these next few months are gonna be some of the best of your entire life. I promise you that. I've lived it, I know. And and win or lose you're going to want to remember this time. And so take this book and take this pen and write in it. And sometimes the, the entry is just going to be 10 miles today. Sucked, (laughs) you know, Uh, talked about whatever, you know, with, with whoever, it's just going to be really simple stuff, but it's going to remind you that you are in the best time of your life and enjoy this whole thing, you know? And I really think they bought into that and they certainly bought into that idea that, Hey, we're in this thing together. Uh, I stole this idea from the Cleveland Cavaliers and uh, created a puzzle and it was, I made it out of a picture of them, the six of them. And I filled in the top half of the puzzle, which was essentially them. And then the bottom part, I think we had something like, 20 pieces to go or something. And after each workout, somebody else would get to put a puzzle piece in whoever either had the best workout or did something that day that was super cool or, you know, was a great teammate, teammate that day. And, um, that may sound, seem sound or sound kind of corny, like a high school thing. But again, I took it from the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, during their championship year, a, a couple of years ago. And they, they, we just had, we just had so much fun and we were just working so hard and it just really felt like we were going to get it done. So, that day, it was it was in many ways expected. It didn't feel terribly uh, crazy to me what was happening out there because it's really what we envisioned and what we expected to happen. And so, what I remember about the day more than anything is just is just the aftermath, just seeing all the other athletes so genuinely happy for Alafine. And sure, there was disappointment because the others didn't make it, but. I think we live in reality in this group, you know, uh, we knew that all six of us weren't going to make it. I mean, that's just not, it's just not feasible, you know? So, uh, to see them so genuinely happy and hanging out and enjoying themselves together that, that whole day and into the night, late into the night was the best part. I think Kara got in on some of the very, very late <laughs> post partying for all. <laughs> I yeah, probably don't I even was... remember that. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's really great. I mean, we had four of your athletes on and they all talked about team and especially the women talked about 
they all kept circling back to talking about their teammates. And I just think that's really special. And especially at the elite level, where just like you said, you have six athletes, there's only six spots total for the, for the whole country. So the reality is that they're not all going to get on that team. Um, but tell us about, tell us about like, like a couple days after and looking back, I mean, I just can't imagine there was just so much excitement for Alephine, but also Steph and Kellen ran great. And it turned out Kellen had a stress fracture, I think at the time. Yes. Um, when you had time to like reflect, what were your thoughts looking back on it? I don't know. I was just exhausted. I mean, in the past I've struggled with really high highs and really low lows. And I've really worked on that because for the athletes, I need to be much more even keel. So I think I did do a good job of not crashing as much after this. And um, so that was good. I don't, I'm not big on going back. So I don't, I don't remember what I was thinking. I was just happy. You know, I was just happy and tired. And we, of course, the pandemic hit. So a vacation that Jen and I had planned didn't get to happen. It had to be altered uh, quite a bit. We were going to go to Mexico and leave our daughter uh, with my parents, but we had to end up just going to a Airbnb in Phoenix with the three of us. Um, and I mostly just slept. <laughs> I just slept a lot. So I don't know. I, I think it was just happiness and exhaustion and, and not a whole lot of um, deep, deep analysis. One thing I was reflecting on, cause I, we were there, Karen and I were both there cheering on the sidelines. And so I got to see them passing in person, but didn't get to watch the race on TV until a couple days later, I went back to watch and got to see Alphine's finish, which I hadn't seen. And her confidence and the way she ran with such strength and power over those final miles, just really taking the race by its horns. And, and it was clear that she would not be denied as you were watching that unfold, I'm sure you've seen it in practice before, but what were you thinking as a coach as she was running to victory? I had seen it in practice a lot. <laughs> so we, we were pretty confident. Uh, I remember Ben and I, because we kept speaking back and forth on the phone during the race, Ben, Bruce, and I, because we were in different spots. And once she and Molly Seidel, or Seidel uh, pulled away, it, it's no offense to Molly. She ran phenomenally. But we were very confident at that point that Alephine would win. Um, so what was I thinking? Let's see when she, the last time I saw her, it was a half mile to go and I just was pumped. I mean, it, it, you don't have a lot of time to think you're just yelling and screaming and, um, you know, you're also thinking about Steph and Kellen who are about to come by and, um, it was just, just elation, you know, it was just pure joy. I was just so happy for her and so happy to see her doing that. And, and look, I'm competitive too. You know, I love to win and it's, it's winning is fun. It's really fun. And I know our sport is really, you know, there's a lot of humble folks in our sport and that's cool. And, and I try to be humble too, but man, I love to win. And I don't think there's anything wrong with admitting that. And uh, man, it feels good. It's so good. It's such a great feeling. And, you know, we had been close to making the team in the past and that's a terrible feeling. <laughs> so it was nice to uh, be on the other side of it. Yeah, it must have been validating. I mean, in 2016, I think Kellen was like sixth, I think. I mean, she was sixth on, in the marathon and fourth in the, on the track. And, right. So you were just right there and you knew you were on, you knew you had it in your athlete. So it must have, there must have been some validation in that. Like, finally, you got it done. Yeah, there was. I mean, a lot of people asked, asked me that. Uh, the, the thing is, though, what's weird, I think, Carol, you could 
I think you would agree with this. What's weird is as you, as an athlete or as a group, as you make these jumps, it's kind of weird because if you'd have asked any of these people two years before they made this jump, they would have been like, no way, that's going to be so awesome. That's going to be the best thing ever. But then when you're living it, it, it almost becomes an expectation. So Alephine winning didn't seem crazy because that's what I thought she would do. So it's not quite as dramatic as maybe the outsider would think because it's what you expected. It's still really, really fun and awesome, but it's not shocking. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah, I totally know what you mean. Because as you're training and your goals get higher and higher, there's that level, you know, the bar is raised and your expectation of yourself is raised. So I totally get what you're saying. But hey, as a fan, it was super awesome. <laughs> no, it was <laughs> super exciting. Awesome. I'm not downplaying it. It was super <laughs> awesome, but it was it was expected. And so that that's kind of um, that's kind of the weird thing about sport and especially in running because you're training. So you know what she was doing in training. So it's not shocking to you. But as a sports fan, I can step back and see how awesome it was. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just a great day. Let's talk about the men's race. Scott Fobble ran a fantastic race, but he was one of those hoping to be on the podium that didn't get there. After the race, you said, to, I don't remember what outlet. You said, I don't know what happened in the men's race. It was lightning fast overall. What do you make of it now as you reflect back? I still think I misjudged it for sure. It was it went faster than I thought, and I feel bad about that. I, I did not think it would go that fast, and I told Scott I didn't think it would go that fast. Um, but, you know, we were as ready as we could be, and he ran as well as he could run. And like I said about having perspective and living in reality, that's just the reality of it. And, you know, I've said this a couple of times, and I don't try to – stand on top of a podium and shout it because I'm not trying to make excuses, but he had a terrible, terrible flu six weeks out as did Scott Smith. They, they were living together. Scott Smith brought this flu back from California. God knows if it was coronavirus or what it sure seemed like it, but I, I don't know because I don't know how to get them tested for it. But I mean, it, it lasted 10 days. It was a respiratory flu. It was brutal. Uh, they were completely wiped out f- from a fatigue perspective and they missed a number of really important workouts and, and really important miles. And they just weren't as fit as they would have been had they not gotten that uh, illness. And on that day with that field, you had to be a hundred percent. I mean, you had to be absolutely 100% and you could not afford to have had any setbacks and they did. And I'm not sitting here saying they would have made the team. I'm not saying that because that's unfair to those who did. They ran phenomenally. Uh, I'm just saying, I would have loved to have seen them on their game 100%. And they were healthy, don't get me wrong, by the time they stepped on the line and they had a lot of belief, but they just didn't have the goods uh, that they would have had otherwise. The uncomfortable question there on the men's side is, do you think shoes had an impact? Uh, I think it, I think shoes had an imp- I think shoe technology had an impact on the race, uh, but I actually think our shoes really fared well. Uh, I mean, obviously we went one, six, eight on the women's side and, you know, I think Scott was maybe the second person not wearing the, the alpha fly or whatever it was, or vapor flies or some one or the other, I guess, in the, in the men's race. So I, I think our shoes fared very well, but, but obviously yes, shoe technology, uh, had an effect on the race. I don't think four years ago, those are the times you would have seen on that course, because I don't think the shoe technology was where it is today. So then how as a coach do you think about that 
and it, you know what do you want to see as we go on shoe technology obviously hoka is doing a good job of keeping up but that also means we have to evolve so how are you thinking about it well i guess i have two two thoughts one is as a coach and as a leader of the team and our program you know, I can't sit here and be talking about the shoes all the time. You know, we have to go to the line believing we're ready to go and that we've got as good a shoes as anybody. And truthfully, like I said, I, th- I think we, we do, or if not, we're very, we're very, very close. Um, we're running faster times in our shoes, the Rocket X out on Lake Mary Road than we've ever run before. So I have to believe that, that we've also made a giant leap uh, in our shoe technology. So I do feel good about, about that side of it. And so that's kind of the approach we take is, hey, we've got We've got great shoes. We're not at a disadvantage. On we go. Pretty simple approach. Um, stepping back from that and talking about the sport as a whole and what I believe, I would say that I believe we have a long ways to go in terms of addressing this issue. I don't think the somewhat quick reaction of World Athletics to this quote unquote controversy should be the end. Uh, if you look at sports that also have a lot of technology involved, whether it be NASCAR or golf or swimming or, or baseball, I mean, pretty much every sport I'll pick, um, I'll pick golf because I, I am a big golf fan. So the, the, the golf technology in terms of the clubs and the balls is constantly getting better. Um, the, the companies are constantly innovating. So in response, the PGA Tour is constantly making rules. Um, every year, there, there are very clear rules that are a little different than the year before based on that new technology. So as long as World Athletics realizes that this is going to be an ongoing thing and that they haven't solved the problem, um, then we can be okay moving forward. But But we've got to keep some integrity in this thing. You know, swimming is even a better example, I think, because it's probably a more similar sport. Maybe more of our fans cross over. And if you remember, they had a period of time where they had gone to full length swimsuits, men and women wearing full length suits that were super high tech and allowing the athletes to just fly through the water like never before. And they were setting world records every time out. And it was damaging the integrity of the sport because it was it had become more about the suits than the athletes that's we don't want that and credit to swimming who said you know what this isn't right this isn't what we want our sport to be and they had the they had the balls quite frankly to say we're we're going back and and sports don't like to go back but they went back and and they said look we're not going there again that's that's not what we want even though they were getting a lot of press for all the world records that were happening and so I think that's our sport as well, or that's what our sport needs to look at is say, hey, do we want to become that where it's all about the technology uh, or do we want to, the athletes to, to figure this out or to, to decide the, the outcome of these races? And so I'm not saying whether I believe that's where we are or not. I'm just saying I hope that our, our governing body understands that this, is, this thing isn't over. It's, gonna, it's never going to be over. Yeah, I love that. That's great perspective. And I like that you hit on the integrity of the sport, it's something – that running has such a long history and, and just being able to compare generations. And um, you're right. It's something that's going to have to be real evaluated on an annual basis. And um, that's the only way to keep it moving forward with integrity. 
I'm curious though, Ben, as a coach myself of marathoners, do you think the shoes as they stand are changing the sport of marathoning in a fundamental way? You know, it seems like leg fatigue is just different now at the end of a marathon because of the energy that's coming back from the shoes. And do you believe that's true? And if so, then what does that mean for training for a marathon or even racing a marathon? Yes, I, I said before that I think the shoe technology had an effect on the, on the Olympic trials for sure. I think people ran faster than they would have four years ago, eight years ago, 12 years ago, et cetera. Uh, and that that comment in and of itself is nothing new. I think that's been the case for a long time. You know, shoe technology has continued to get better and better. I think this was a more drastic change and much quicker than perhaps the, you know, gradual evolution that had taken place over the previous 30 years, let's say. Um but what do I think about how it's been affecting the races? You know, the the thing that I I guess bothers me the most, and I could be wrong, but it sure seems like there's been a lot of these major races lately and and big city marathons where you've got, I mean, I think Dubai was a a good example last year. You got seven guys sprinting to the finish in a marathon. And it just, to me, that doesn't seem right to me. It, it, the thing that I enjoy about the marathon is the difficulty of it, is the fact that, you know, if you make a move at 21 miles and, and you're a guy and you drop a 440, that makes these other athletes really have to think about whether they can do it or not. Or if you're a woman and you drop a, a 510, 515 mile, these women have to think, God, can I do that? But it does seem like you watch some of these races and it seems like those decisions are becoming easier and easier because you, you just don't have the level of fatigue that you had. Um, only a few short years ago. So, you know, that, that, that concerns me. I, I think that's what we need to, that's the question we need to be asking ourselves is, Hey, are these shoes so good that it's taking away the best part of the sport, which is the difficult part, you know, running a marathon, racing a marathon should be really difficult. And Luckily in Atlanta, the race we were talking about, the hills <laughs> made it so difficult that I think it was still an awesome race. But God, you wonder, had that race been on a flat course, what would there have been? Just 25 men just running together all the way to the last mile? I don't think that's as fun. So we, we got to make sure these shoes aren't so good that they're doing the work for us. Cheers to that. Let's shift topics to another challenging topic in our sport which is that of why we have this podcast in the first place clean sport and about creating a level playing field eliminating those that are taking peds doing things the wrong the wrong way as an athlete when did you become aware that that was a thing i guess when i was really starting to pay attention to professional running so in the you know late 90s kind of that epo era you know when you're in the sport, it's so much easier to recognize things that just are fake and magic and not real. And I can remember some of those those performances and just just watching them and just saying, "This is not this is not real. This is not how the human body works." Um, we, we should be much more tired at the end of a twelve forty five k or or um, you know three fifty five fifteen hundred for for the women. Um, 
and, and this is back in the nineties. I'm not saying that those times are impossible, but what I'm just saying is watching particular people without naming names run those particular times and just saying that's, that's just, it just didn't smell right to me. And unfortunately you can't say anything because you know, you feel like, um, it's slander or you're, you're being a sore loser or, or whatever. Um, but I kind of learned the other side of it though, the fan side with the Lance Armstrong situation, because I don't know anything about cycling or especially back then I didn't know anything about cycling. So I was watching Lance cancer survivor, yellow bracelet, you know, cool guy crushing everybody, uh, winning these stages, uh, up the Hills and thinking this guy's awesome. This guy's the best. And then hearing these cyclists, accuse him of doping and he's denying it i'm saying hey this is our guy you know why would he dope he he had cancer you know and i just i just bought into everything he was saying because i was none the wiser he there was no eyeball test for me because i had no point of reference um and now in retrospect after i realized of course that i was wrong and that he he was in fact doping um i realized oh okay i see what these guys were saying because they get it. They knew the kind of power he was producing up those hills, and they knew that was fake. They knew that wasn't possible without the help of drugs. And um, you know that that's what's hard now to explain to the to the fan, if you will, because I get it. I get where they're coming from. Why would they, they can't understand when they went? What was one of the people who've been caught? Um, Rita Jeptu. Uh, when they see her win a marathon, why would they think she's cheating? They don't have the point of reference that we have on the inside. Um, at a high level. And so that I think that's just the challenge of it is trying to explain to the fan that, Hey, this is going on guys. It really is. And it's really cheating and it's really uh, terrible. And it's, and it's stealing uh, without sounding like a sore loser. It's, it's tough as an athlete to go up against athletes who, you know, are cheating. I'm curious from a coach's perspective, sending your athlete out against someone that you know is a cheater. What is that like for you? And how do you talk them through that? I heard, I listened to the Bob Kennedy podcast and I really liked what he had to say because I pretty much feel the same way. I just can't let it bother me and they just can't let it bother them. I think that at least while you're in it, I, I just, I just think that it's, it's again, it's living in reality. It's not a fun reality to acknowledge. But you're going to go up against people that are cheating. And I think if at the core of what you're trying to accomplish is intrinsic, if at the core of what you're trying to do is see how good you can be as an individual, again, see how deep you can go on a given day, then it's easier to not let those other things bother you. Because if you're driven only by extrinsic things, uh, podium finishes, uh, times, wins, uh, then you're going to drive yourself nuts with the fact that your extrinsic goals are being affected in such a tangible way by people who are cheating. Uh, but if you're Scott Falbel, for example, and you run 209.09 at Boston and you absolutely laid it out, you, you had nothing left. You had not even one more second in you on the day. You can be so proud of that. And sure enough, a couple months ago, we find out that one of those athletes has now been busted for performance-enhancing drugs. So he should have been sixth on the day, but or, or maybe even higher. Who knows? But he, it doesn't change the fact that he ran as well as he could have on the day. Uh, 
the bummer is from a business side, it costs him a lot of money. But he can look himself in the mirror tomorrow, uh, the next day, and 10 years from now and know that he did it the right way. And so, you know, to me, that's the reward. Obviously, though, we'd like to weed out those people, and they are being weeded out here and there, as you alluded to there. But what needs to be done from your perspective as a coach to continue to take steps forward so that Scott doesn't get money stolen from him? I think as – look, of course I want World Athletics, WADA, USADA to continue to – to innovate and to figure out ways to keep the sport as clean as possible. I love the biological passport. I think without it, we would not have seen near the, the bands that we've seen, the number of bands that we've seen in the last couple of years. So kudos to uh, all of those groups for creating that and, and using that to uh, catch some of these folks. But the harsh reality is that, even as they continue to work harder and harder and come up with better and better testing, there are going to continue to be people who cheat. So I think in in many ways, the the best way to combat it is to create a culture uh, among the athletes that doesn't allow it. Right. And so, you know, in American distance running right now, I can certainly tell anybody who's listening that the vast majority of athletes are clean in my estimation. I would be absolutely shocked if certain names, it, it came out that they were using drugs, I would be just totally shocked. I just don't, you know, I just don't see it because the the culture is such that it's just so looked down upon. It's so um, disgusting, basically, to, to all of us. Now, I'm not saying everybody, uh, but I'm saying the vast majority. And so I feel good about that. But that's essentially self-policing because the culture in American distance running among most of the groups and most of the people that know each other is that, Hey, we're in this thing together. Let's be clean and let's just race. The problem is it, there's so many different factions. We we're not really a global running community. We're, we're set, we're, we're, we're broken into these factions by country. Um, and there are countries like Japan who I think have that same kind of culture, just so much integrity and, would never want to cheat. And that's not what they're about. Um, I, I guess the list could go on and on. Uh, but then there are countries who in the past um, have had just these clumps of people have been busted. Like Spain has been like that in the past. And I'm not saying anything about anyone now. I'm just saying that's a fact. Um, obviously, Kenya and Ethiopia right now have a major problem. Russia, of course, has been a major uh has had major issues over the years. And I think what happens is when the, when the bubble bursts, right, when, when more people justify it than vilify it, then the culture uh, is, is the problem. And people are saying to themselves, oh, everybody's doing it because everyone around them is doing it. Um, and you saw that with cycling, right? I think you probably still see that with cycling in a lot of ways. Um, so I just think we need to continue to work on self-policing and keep keep our own house as clean as possible um, and encourage athletes across the globe to do the same in their house. That's powerful concept. I mean, easier said than done though, right? So what do you, so what do you even do? Where do we start with that? You think? Oh gosh. I mean, the, the powerful people 
who have a real voice, and this is why Kara is so awesome, have to use that voice, you know? And so let's take a country like Kenya or Ethiopia, because I think in many ways it's unfortunate that they have such a bad rap right now. Because, look, are you telling me that 100% of Kenyans and Ethiopians are doping? I would find that very hard to believe. What I would love to see in a country like Kenya, is, and, and you've seen this with some of the retired athletes, but I would like to see a current athlete who is, who is indeed clean absolutely stand up and make a huge stink about this problem and challenge the other athletes, uh, challenge their compatriots to compete clean. And I think you've seen that sort of thing work well in the United States. There are a lot of major athletes in this country that consistently stand up and and spread that message and explain uh, the issues and take a stand and stand up for what's right. And that's, that's what probably has to happen in these other countries. But I would be remiss not to mention this, and I remember Bob saying this too, unfortunately, it's apples and oranges. You know, we're talking about college-educated white people in the United States who, if they don't make it, they'll just get a regular job and make just as much money, if not more, doing whatever else they might be able to do. Whereas in some of these third-world countries, it's not such a simple equation. Um, they go and make $50,000 at, at one road race, at one marathon, and they're absolutely wealthy. Uh, they are wealthy and can take care of their family for years to come. So I just I, I also have a problem sometimes with our country standing up uh, and getting on its high horse uh, when they don't really understand or, or don't even try to understand uh, what goes on in other countries. It's a complex issue. It's for very sure. complex. It's not easy, but <laughs> I just think uh, I just I like to say that because I just think that, um, you know, I don't know. I just get annoyed sometimes when people, uh, especially in the U.S., like you heard my comments earlier. I feel like sometimes you hear people in the U.S. act like we've never had a problem. We've had mm -hmm. plenty of problems, you know. So let's mm -hmm. let's clean up our own house and, and let's encourage others to clean up theirs. But let's not um, let's not always try to act like we know everything when we don't. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned the power of speaking out which is so, so important. And I would love it if an Elliot Kipchoge st stood up for what's happening in Kenya and really made a point to address it, which largely he hasn't. I'm a, I'm a fan of his, but he is the one who would have the power to help set that example. And to this point, he's largely not done that in a really vocal way. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. I mean, that stinks. I mean, I, it shouldn't have to all be on him. I mean, there's a number of people it could be, and but I, I get it. I mean, that's that's a fair um, that's a fair thing to say. I think. So we've got to wrap this, Ben. But I did want to wrap with just a question on how do you prepare your athletes for a delayed Olympics? How are you guys thinking about this time? Obviously, it's a weird time to be a, a human, much less a distance runner trying to train for the pinnacle of the sport. How have you approached it? <laughs> well, no better than anybody else, I'd imagine. Uh, <laughs> it, it just goes in waves. You know, I think that I can only just take you through briefly. I think what, what, what went on inside our team was you know, at first, when things started getting delayed, we tried to stay really positive. 
Um, then when the Olympics got delayed, you know, we tried to say, hey, tried to see the silver lining there. Hey, for Alafine, it gives her another year to get even fitter. You know, for the young athletes, it gives them another year to uh, get fit and, 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 and be more prepared to hit the Olympic standards. Um, you know, we, we tried to look at the positives. But then as, as things continue to get canceled and canceled and pushed off and pushed off, we kind of, I think there was a little, there was definitely a, a period of, of uh, depression. Maybe that's a strong word, but um, disappointment. And now we're kind of just playing offense. Now we're just saying, look, we can't really predict when this thing is going to end and when real traditional races are going to be back. So we've got we've to take it upon uh, our own shoulders, take it in, in our own hands and create things for ourselves and for our fans. And so we, we've got some things coming up this summer that are a little different, a little outside the box. Uh, I alluded to them earlier, but I think you'll see us chasing some some Strava segments in uh, Flagstaff and doing some of the things that maybe more of the ultra runners have been known for in the past and creating fun little time trials within the team that we can play up. And, you know, that gives the athletes an opportunity to race and to dig deep and to do what they love to do but then it gives the fans something to watch. So it's kind of a win-win. It keeps us sharp. And that way we don't have to constantly be thinking about the delays and how far off everything is because that started to feel unhealthy to me. Uh, even, even when we were trying to find the silver linings, it was just like, man, just feels, it feels like we're, we're grasping at straws here. Let's, let's just focus on the now. Cause that's what we're used to. We're, we're really good on this group of like, Hey, this is the segment we're in and this is what we're focused on. So we had a meeting Monday and, that's what it was like. This is the summer. These are the fun little things we're going to do. And this is what we're focused on. And when we start hearing about uh, the fall and what's actually going to be available, we'll, we'll deal with that when it comes. Well, it was really fun watching you guys run those 5Ks last week. Where, what's the best place for everyone to follow you guys and follow all your summer plans? We've got all the different social channels. So you can follow us at NAZ underscore Elite on uh, Twitter and Instagram. You can follow our website, nazelite.com. You can sign up for our newsletter there, which comes out once a week. And you can just follow all the athletes. They're all, they all have sort of their own voice, and some of them are super funny, and some of them are super motivating. And um, I would just encourage you to follow all of them and get to know them as people because they're really cool. Great. Well, so are you, Ben. Thanks so much for taking the time. We really appreciate that as well as everything you're doing for our sport through NAZ Elite. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm sorry I can go on rants sometimes, but uh, I really, I really, <laughs> love rants. I really appreciated the opportunity. And those are all topics that I'm passionate about. I don't always uh, tweet about them and things like that. I actually really prefer this, um, this format for, for conversations like this. And so thank you for, uh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Ben Rosario, everyone. Thanks to him for joining us. Thanks to him again for everything that he's doing for our sport and everything he's doing with Team NAZ Elite. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you want to learn more about the Clean Sport Collective, go check us out at cleansport.org where you can sign the pledge and encourage others to sign the pledge. You can also check us out on social media at cleansportco. That's at cleansportco on Twitter and Instagram to join in the conversation. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. We thank you for listening. And of course, we'll be back to you next week. We'll talk to you then.